Broadcasting live from Fat Ken and Little Barbie, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Gareth Strother. And I'm your other host, Seamus Connolly. And today we are joining the rest of the world. We are embracing the meme. We are joining everybody else in the theater for the double feature of Barbenheimer. It is... Or Oppen Barbie, we kind of flipped the script. I don't know what order we were supposed to watch it in, but we we have a lot to talk about today. I would say this Ken is a wagon jumper. <laughs> I have become well. Oh damn it! What was it? You? Uh, I've become Ken Destroyer of Gorals. I just <laughs> I've been saying that in my head all week, and I I will never not say it. There's so many weird quotable things from both of these movies, and just a the weird rabid culture around this cinema event right now. I, I feel like this is going to stick around in people's minds for a long time. But before we get into our main segment, that is both of these pretty good movies. We do have some news to get through starting up top with a strike update as SAG-AFTRA and the WGA still picketing, still on strike. And it came out earlier this week that the AMPTP has refused to return to the negotiating table despite requests from SAG-AFTRA's leadership. So, no end in sight on this bad boy. It seems like the studios are pretty much just going to try to wait out this strike, but I don't think that's going to go super well for them. There's also been rumors of movies potentially getting pushed until next year when they hopefully w- that when according to studios they will hopefully have their talent back to help promote, but there's been no official announcements on that front yet. I mean, the way that these people on strike are being treated right now, like the whole Paramount, like cutting down all of the foliage on the trees around a picket line to like roast the picketers alive every day. And, you know, Bob Iger coming out and being like, they're being unrealistic about things or whatever, you know, whatever his quote was recently. I It's so bizarre that they think that they have more, more power in this situation than they probably will ultimately have it's you know more pe- more unions are joining all the time more people are in support of the these talented hard-working people that make you know make our entertainment industry it's it's the money people are just like still lighting cigars with hundred dollar bills and being like oh the little people will fold eventually but i i don't know if it's gonna go that way and as we will talk about more during our main segment this entire sensation that's going on right now the fourth biggest opening weekend in box office history insane is because all of these actors that people were excited about did a really good job marketing and it was a really good they were both really well written films and the exact work that the studios are currently downplaying as being not worthy of more compensation are exactly the reasons that people are flocking to theaters right now. And the fact that they are too stupid and and money-centric to be able to capitalize on the way that the movie theaters are back for the summer in a way I didn't think they were going to be this summer, it's so short-sighted. Yeah, it is... We've kind of been bracing ourselves a little bit for the for the fallout of of all of this stuff and how that's just it's the ripple effect is going to be years and years of affecting all of our you know our favorite sectors of the entertainment world here. But I think I think it's just growing by the day how detrimental that's going to be. And you know hopefully they can the AMPTP can get wise and realize that they need to 
treat humans like humans one day and, and pay them accordingly. But until then, we will keep keep updating on the strike as it as it grows and grows. Up next, though, we do have to acknowledge the passing of a legend. Tony Bennett died earlier this week, and while definitely it's been very public, his declining health and the way that his family and those close to him are navigating, that it still does come as a bit of a surprise. It is definitely a big icon of the music industry lost. I... Grew up listening to Tony Bennett's album, The Playground, which is mm. one of his kids' albums that I had on CD and would put into my, my boombox on my bedside table <laughs> when I was a little boy. And I have, I've loved also kind of him rediscovering public life over the last couple decades through his collaborations with Lady Gaga. That oh, have yeah. Both, that have brought both of them a surprising amount, I think, of crossover with each other's audiences and they have put out some good albums oh absolutely i i was a, i'm a pretty big fan of uh the work they do together it's you know it kind of proves the range that lady gaga has and of course it you know like you said kind of bringing tony bennett back into the fold of like in it, while he was still making that music with her it just proved how even in his older age he was the legend that everybody knew definitely well, his music will definitely live on forever. It is it is classic for a reason. He is one of the absolute OGs, and he will be missed. Coming up next in our news segment here, a bit of good news from the theater industry for a change. AMC Theaters is officially abandoning their plans to charge more for seats in their premium sight lines. So we talked about this a few months ago, how they were planning on rolling that out. I think they did test it in limited markets, so I'm assuming that either didn't go well or they realized through market research that that was just not worth their time, and so they are officially backpedaling on that. Thank mm-hmm. goodness. I mean, you and I are A-list boys. You and I weren't going to get got by this <laughs> anyway, but I just can't even imagine how stupid you would have to be by, once again, betraying the goodwill that audiences have shown movie theaters more recently and being like, you know what? We're, be- we're coming back from the pandemic, so what if we made it even worse to go to the movies? That that was my thinking around all of this weird news about that, like seeing the, the a la carte map of seating that they were trying out, and I was just like, they were barely not collapsed entirely like the the entire global cinema industry was barely not collapsed by covid and now they're it it was almost a favor that people were were still very much willing to go to something in the theater often enough to make it still a profitable industry so i'm hoping that this isn't like kind of how netflix was like we're just testing out extra uh payment for different plans you know and we're definitely going to backpedal on that and then you know, a couple weeks ago, they're finally pulling the trigger just because they were like, yeah, it was the plan all along. And we just wanted to appease the public until we really did it. But I think that this decision would be more detrimental to the the cinema experience than, you know, any horrible, you know, Warner Warning, Disney Danger, anything else like that. This would have truly been the, the last nail in the coffin. So I'm, I'm very happy they're, they're backpedaling where they are. I'll, I mean, I'll have some additional thoughts when we get into our main segment about (laughs) contemporary movie going. So, (laughs) yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad they're not putting up any more hurdles, unlike some other 
naughty little studios around here <laughs> as we get into a Disney danger. Disney danger. People in the adjoining hotel rooms don't know what I'm talking about. Oh God. The Galactic Empire is at it again, Seamus. Uh, once again, with one of the stupidest things I have maybe ever heard. <laughs> I mean, is that really true? No, but I... You know me, Karen. I'm a packaging man. I will be... I am a sucker for nice packaging for my movies and video games, but Disney releasing a steelbook of WandaVision with no disc is baffling to me. It is the ultimate, like buy garbage for no reason for a show that is exclusively digitally streaming on Disney Plus. Like there's not even I don't know. I was a fan I'm a I'm still I would say a bigger fan of WandaVision. I thought it was a very interesting show and I, I like a lot of what they did. And if they released this steelbook with a disc and with special features and with, you know, all the little extras, I would maybe actually more than likely pull the trigger and buy it. But this seems pretty insulting actually i completely agree especially like i i mean i wouldn't buy a wandavision steelbook but i would buy an andor steelbook oh yeah. i would buy the mandalorian i hate to say it but i would <laughs> you know who i am oh yes i do my friend i mean hell i would even go pull the trigger on like a loki steelbook i'm still pretty much on the loki train and that's like yeah. the last thing i've got going on marvel wise but this is so weird who do they just have, like, an extra couple million blank steelbooks they need to get rid of? And they're just like, whatever, people, Marvel freaks will buy whatever we put out. But this is, this is so weird. It's really catering to the TikToker with a wall of Marvel stuff behind oh my them God, yeah. demographic, I that, think. You're 100% right. This is just, they're selling a prop for your social media. That's what they're selling right now. It has no value whatsoever in terms of, like, the actual content of a show that I actually hold in pretty high regard. It's, you're right, it's just for the shelf behind you. In your, in your movie review vlog YouTube channel that you have to just really dress up everything because that's how that works nowadays and they'll make you spend $30 on a box of nothing. I think it's insane. I do not think that they're going to backpedal this in any capacity. I think they'll release this one and then probably just, like, not do any others. They have such a clutch on so much interesting streaming content right now. Like, what is really stopping them from just doing this the whole time? I mean, it doesn't seem... World according to Jeff Goldblum's steelbook, where I can't watch it on <laughs> I was gonna the say. disc, or I can't watch it on the actual streaming service. I was going to say, I've never heard of that show, Garrett. That doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, God. That Crater steelbook is coming any day now. <laughs> Oh, oh, it's bad, Seamus. It's bad, bad, dude. It is the truly the Disneyest danger we've had in a minute, I feel like. It's just, more than anything, it's just stupid, you know? Usually Disney danger is like a problem that needs to be addressed in a more serious way, but this is just stupid. Disney dunce cap. Disney dunce cap. Exactly. We're gonna make. We're gonna put those on our merch store, gang. We're gonna <laughs> Disney dunce cap. Brought to you by Pop Culture Reverence. I was gonna say it's a dunce cap with Mickey ears, but that's literally just the sorcerers. Just the sorcerers. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we gotta. We'll 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 figure out something. It, it'll have a speaker in it that plays the Imperial warning sound or something. <laughs> 
No, they're not. They're not Mickey Mouse ears. Disney lawyer who's sending us. They're headphones that play a non-trademarked sound effect that just happens to sound an awful lot like the Star Wars Galactic Empire siren. No, that's my giggle, Disney lawyers. That's not a Mickey giggle. I promise you. Ho 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 ho. Both of our voices are too deep. Damn it. That will hold up in court. <laughs> All right. But let's go ahead and move on to phase one of our main <laughs> segment. Are we doing Oppenheimer first? What are we doing first? Let's do, let's do it the way we watched it. Let's hit Oppenheimer first. Here we go. Main segment time. Coming in hot on Oppenheimer. For today's main segment, we are going to be talking about the Barbenheimer double feature. But first, off the bat, we are starting with half of our main segment, 20 minutes on Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. That's the one that you and I saw first, Seamus, in IMAX Mm. with a packed theater. It's nice to see. I mean, I do not know the last time I saw folks packed at a movie theater opening weekend like this. It is wild. Yeah, that was one of the biggest surprises of all. Not only, like, packed when we walked in, like, fairly early for our showtime, but, like, walk-ins from, like, non-pre-bought tickets, it seemed like. People were taking, like, single seats away from their friends because everyone's like, well, we gotta go. We gotta go see Oppenheimer this weekend, and and that's the only option. I, I haven't seen something like that in a long, long time where groups are splitting up, people sitting in the first, like, two rows of an IMAX screening just because that's the only real estate there is. It was very interesting. And as for the film itself, I think I have made it... I know you know this. I think I've made it relatively clear on the show that I have not been a fan of most of Nolan's work over the last decade. Not an Interstellar guy. Not a Dark Knight Rises guy. Mm. Not a Dunkirk guy. I did like Tenet. I thought Tenet was good. I didn't but think like, it was great. Not overwhelmingly. Like, I've, I've never yeah. heard you been like, let's watch Tenet right now, you know? No, but I enjoy, like, I enjoyed Tenet. I have some problems with Tenet. This is the Tenet episode. Someday there will <laughs> be the Tenet episode, probably. Oh, I'm sure. And so I'll get into it then. I love Inception. Inception is oh, yeah. a masterpiece. But that is really the last Christopher Nolan movie that I saw, and I was like... Yeah, that's Christopher Nolan, baby. He does not make a good movie, you know? Well, hell, that was probably the first Christopher Nolan movie that I ever saw was Inception. And that, like, blew my freaking mind as a, you know, a 10-year-old or an 11-year-old or whatever year that came out. Changed my life. Yeah, I was 12 years old that summer, and my parents took me, and I was like, I don't want to see whatever this movie is. They were like, yeah, you do, Garrett. Come on, we're going to the movies, <laughs> you know? And, oh, man, yeah. And, I mean, I, I am... You know, I liked Dunkirk. I thought the novelty of seeing Harry Styles at the time in, like, a war drama was very interesting to me. You he know, I... do more stuff than Harry Styles. Wait, what? He should do more stuff. He should be in more stuff. Oh, I, I think. would... I Harry think that would be great. I feel like he could have slipped into Tenet somewhere, a movie I've never seen. But, I mean, they've got they've got a very... He likes an interesting ensemble cast, that Christopher Nolan. And this, I mean, this movie's no exception. There were some very weird but incredible performances from people that I thought I would never see in Hollywood again, more or less. Yeah, it was genuinely an impressive roster of guys that you're like, hey! <laughs> you know, David Crummel's great to see him here. Jack Quaid playing Richard Feynman, yeah. which I thought was great casting. 
Um, who else we got? We got Will Stronghold. Yeah, from Will Sky Stronghold. High. Benny Safdie with his beautiful accent out there. Loved him. Broderick from Diary from of a Wimpy, Wimpy Kid. Kid. <laughs> Oh, Josh Peck, we Josh cannot Peck? forget jo- jo- the man you- who dropped the Trinity bomb, <laughs> Josh Peck. Yeah, yeah, like what a what an insane thing to see him in after his like step back from legitimate television and film productions for a while to do his like YouTube career after after his Nickelodeon stuff was over. But he's back, baby, and he's in Christopher Nolan movies now, I guess. And obviously, on top of that stellar supporting cast, which. By the way, a lot of guys who, as we just mentioned, don't work a ton, but are really, really good actors and really valuable Mm -hmm. to the craft of cinema, and a big part of the reason that this movie is doing so well. So please pay your actors. Yes. AMPTP members. God, please. But speaking of actors, we've got our, our mainline cast as well, who... Also, great, Killian Murphy. I mean, has he ever really had a starring role in a film of this size? Obviously, he's in, like, he's in Sunshine and 28 Days Later and other things like that as the lead. But I don't think there's ever been a movie anywhere near the size that he's been the lead of. Even in the six other Christopher Nolan movies that he's a part of, he is always kind of more more supporting. I mean, incredible in supporting roles, of course, but but never something of this caliber, I don't think. And he's doing a great job. He, I see the Oppenheimer resemblance. When he was first cast, I was like, yeah, I guess they're both like, you know, skinny white guys. But <laughs> like watching him, I think a lot of it is the way he speaks and also just the, the physical transformation that he underwent. Like, mm-hmm. I know he but, had like a crazy diet to like mm-hmm. kind of look so, you know, malnourished almost, very sunken in the face in, in a lot of this. I, I think that they, he looks incredible. He's acting incredibly. I, I thought he was a star in this. But right there alongside him, Florence Pugh, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, I would say all holding their own in their own ways. Um, but who I was really excited to see back in a good movie again is Robert Downey Jr., who is not only phenomenal in this movie, but also the biggest departure from being Robert Downey Jr. that I've seen him maybe ever do. I mean, mean, I've seen countless Marvel movies. I've seen Tropic Thunder. (laughs) I don't really think I've seen him in anything so serious i guess or like to be taken so seriously in like the film industry per se but yeah he knocked it out of the park it was like and it's a real slow burn with that character obviously you know chris nolan loves his you know playing with time and and cutting back and forth to different eras and all that but robert downey jr was giving me like chills in the theater with the way he his character starts taking a turn later on and i that's like nothing that i would have ever expected from him from my own personal experience. Even in his, you know, more Oscar-y roles in movies like Zodiac and Shortcuts oh, and Chaplin, sure. mm-hmm. he's still being, you know, smarmy Robert Downey Jr. A lot for most of those movies. Chaplin maybe a slightly bit less than the other two, but he's very much in that same wheelhouse in those performances. And this, yeah, it's a very different performance from him and one that i was very glad to see him especially in the later parts of the movie really take to another level that 
I am excited to get a little bit more into in, in spoilers. Yeah. Do you do you want to do you want to jump in there? I almost forgot we weren't in spoilers before I I was about to mention Alden Ehrenreich playing opposite of Robert Downey Jr. Also doing an incredible job, kind of playing off that sinister vibe that he's going on. He is so good, and I think that he's honestly one of the best performances in the movie. But also, I think he has one of the coolest roles on paper. Because he's just kind of this yes man suit mm-hmm. for a lot of the movie, and then when he start w- around the same time that Robert Downey Jr.'s character kind of takes on the more villainous role, it ter- he turns it around and becomes m- more of a guy with a spine and an actual yeah. role to play instead of just being in a scene with with old RDJ there. So yeah, this is this is a movie just brought to life by the supporting cast truly but i would i would like to get into spoilers a little bit before our timer runs out and the trinity explosion wipes us off the face of the earth yes so where do you where do you want to start Seamus? i mean it is a masterclass in like it's, it feels like the film that nolan has been building to his entire career and it certainly has problems i'm not going to say it doesn't but i mean sure i would i would argue that this is maybe Okay, no, I was about to say my favorite. Inception will always reign supreme for many obvious reasons, but this is one of the best movies I've seen in a long time. I guess I don't often go to the theaters to see things like dramas and, you know, historical dramas about a very sad, sad man, but it's incredible. I mean, it's so grounded compared to a lot, so many other Nolan things that I have experienced, and... You know, the the parts where it gets insanely weird, like Florence Pugh having sex with him while she's, like, having him read Sanskrit Hindu religious texts in bed. It, like, it gets to those bizarre places, but ultimately it's just, like, tension and, I guess, no- nothing but tension pretty much until they actually detonate the bomb and... Man, do they detonate that bomb, Garrett. That, like, punched me in the chest when we were in that theater. Yeah, I was really surprised because obviously, you know, you know that the shockwave is coming. But how long Nolan lets you sit in silence and just watch the pure visuals before that IMAX base sneaks up and punches you in the gut? (laughs) It's a very effective sequence. And... Honestly, I don't even know if the, impressively, I don't even know if it's the most visceral sequence in the film. I think that the, shortly after that, the sequence where he is with all of the folks giving a speech and they're pounding on the, on the risers with their feet. And it almost becomes like a horror film. It really does. They're, they're out of focus, these chattering teeth and screaming distortions haunting Oppenheimer for a victory that he knows has literally grave consequences and is, you know, like Matt Damon says, the most important thing to happen in the history of (laughs) humanity, but not in the way that Matt Damon thinks it is. Oh, man. That scene was... Like, the way he's delivering that speech in in the big auditorium, and he's like, you can see Killian Murphy looks like he's gonna be sick, as he's saying, like, if only we got to use it on Hitler, oh boy, that would have been a gas, and, and <laughs> walking down, and, and he's... Like, it truly looks like he's going to be sick watching, like, teens make out under the bleachers and 
having hallucinations of of carbonized corpses that he's stepping into it, it you're not wrong that it was horrific truly a horror movie moment of like oh everyone's laughing and cheering and clapping but then he he zeroes in on a on a shriek of pain and terror that is just in his own mind while he's you know the stomping getting louder and faster it, it, uh, I, I was i was very surprised that that's what the noise was that we kept hearing in the trailers that like that beat that's picking up of all these these happy victory in japan people stomping around but man it was it was effective as hell when we got to that scene i was also very surprised at, i assumed that that and the trinity test and things were kind of going to be the wrap-up to the oh, film yeah. and then there is a whole other hour at the end that is about the bureaucratic fallout of his entire career and specifically his experience on the manhattan project and how both he and robert downey jr's character strauss are ultimately undone by being on either side of a political landscape that not even the like you know not even the bureaucrats not even the guys who built the bomb are getting away unscathed from this but it's also not the same kind of justice that you know the audience is expecting the mm. film is very intentionally leaving things out that i think some people are criticizing the film for leaving out but i see as a clear statement on how single-minded and obsessed oppenheimer's character is because apparently i saw an interview with matt damon where a lot of the script was written in first person which is almost never done oh yeah that is that is strange so a real emphasis is clearly put on this film without even that foreknowledge of showing the entire world through Oppenheimer's eyes. And that seems to mostly be the color black and white device is that like when you're in Oppenheimer's point of view, it's in color. And when you're with Robert Downey Jr., you're in black and white. And I mean, that makes a lot of sense too, because once they cut to black and white, Killian Murphy is not on screen, I think, ever when it's in black and white. I think it's, like, strictly the hearings that he's not even at, and they kind of just, like, make reference to the aftermath of what happened to him after these hearings that we also cut back and forth to, well, these fake sham hearings or whatever you want to call them. He is on screen a few times when it's black and white, at least. Especially, like, when they have the meeting about the radiation tests that came back. Oh, yes, yes, in the, in and... the super bomb round table thing mm -hmm. that they keep cutting back to. You're right, you're right. But, yeah, I mean, it, he certainly is on screen less. Also, while we're on the topic of the hearings, I want to give a shout-out to both the great undersung Jason Clark, who is an actor who I've loved for a really long time. Jason Clark, yes. He was killing it. His... his... <laughs> insane like he was making me nervous with the way he was so in the zone with those questionings also i i gotta say credit where credit is due rami malik really good in the one scene that he has yeah! in this movie the one line the one bit of dialogue that he swoops in with before you know that one senator that one up-and-coming senator uh kennedy <laughs> john kennedy is, well, that was very funny now that you've brought that up, we have I, I this is something you and I talked about a lot on the day. This movie has the cadence of a superhero of a super, film, yes. oh, which it's so strange. I do not really love about it. As the the most egregious part, I mean, you do have the Marvel esque name drop, like <laughs> the exact same way that he treats Robin's name drop in the Dark Knight <laughs> Rises. 
is the JFK name drop uh, in a hot really timer. Is. But again, more egregious than that is the exposure <laughs> of he Oppenheimer's wearing his military uniform and is it David Crummels is like you got to start dressing yeah, like yeah. you Oppenheimer and then he puts on in a superhero <laughs> suit up sequence the pork pie hat and the pipe that Oppenheimer is synonymous with and like that the memes of Barbenheimer <laughs> have been absolutely harping on nonstop that made me that made me laugh so much I think I leaned over to you in the movie and said, no way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I had to look over at you, too. Like, are we doing this right now? Because he, even at the beginning of the movie, he has, like, this origin story moment where you're, like, seeing his, like, his mind of what he thinks of the science of the universe and, like, oh, you're not good in the lab? Well, this is where you belong in the theory over in Europe yeah. and all that. And then and he's uh, got that like original sin thing with the apple. Oh and... my God. Yeah. That, uh, so, so it, they, he was really, the vibe was there. And I mean, it ebbs and flows a lot within, within the movie, but man, it was strange in a lot of different parts that that's kind of the route they were going with things. I think that this is Nolan's filmmaking style when he's trying to create a mythos around a character and that in trying to make Oppenheimer both this super flawed individual but also put him in the larger historical context of this mythic figure that obviously Oppenheimer is self-mythologizing he himself Mm. is chasing the clout of the immortality of being the guy who built the bomb and that's why he's so opposed to the super bomb like they, they really dig into that that's the whole last hour of the movie is reckoning with the self versus the myth of the man and so i think that there is a good reason that a lot of it has the cadence of a superhero film it still feels a little off-putting it's bizarre it it really is bizarre because you know you get these insane intense moments between characters like emily blunt and in in the in the hearings and stuff and you you know you have like the weird stuff about the secret the secret second mistress that they don't reveal until like the last second there and you know things that are like so unique and strange for the the format of a movie like this and then i don't know you have moments where like <laughs> the big <laughs> there's an albert einstein hiding in the shadows <laughs> reveal at one point that is like, <laughs> like oh like his backup is in dead <laughs> He's like wearing his beanie and he's like, I'm here to, I'm, I'm here to give you, you know, give something to you personally, Oppenheimer. It's, it's, it's a very kind of take you out of uh, the movie for a second situations that they pepper in there all in all. But I mean, I don't think that ruins this movie for me. I want to own this movie. I mean, would it even scratch the same itch on a television set? Probably specifically not at all. But I mean, this is something that I feel like is an important film that I want to revisit uh, soon and probably for, for a long time. I, I'm going in 70mm this weekend, I think after you and I saw it in IMAX, and I think it's clear to me that this is Nolan's Lawrence of Arabia epic. Like, this is his epic biopic. I mean, not that he's not always obsessed with large format, but I feel like he's pushing it especially hard for Oppenheimer. And I think that he sees this as a kind of zenith or at least a turning point in his career, in his filmography. And I'm I'm glad that it's being treated with that amount of reverence because I really do think it's his best movie in 10 years. 
I 100% agree. But before we can go any farther, our time has expired on Oppenheimer, and we need to jump into our 20 minutes on Barbie, my friend. Well, let's call it. Here we go. We are Barbie girls in a Barbie world, and Bar- I gotta say, Barbie exceeded my expectations. I love Greta Gerwig. I think mm. Little Women is one of the best movies the last 10 years. Uh, Noah Baumbach, who she co-wrote the movie with, I also like him. I like him less than I like Greta Gerwig, but as a filmmaker, I think he's very strong. The cast is obviously fantastic, but I was pretty skeptical going into the Barbie movie, <laughs> even with all of that going for it and i gotta say despite being a little trite and a little bit baby's first feminism i did think that this was a genuinely great studio comedy with transcendent performances and a stronger message that i thought it was going to have yeah definitely i feel like i went in with higher expectations than you did maybe just because it's such a bizarre concept and i, I really didn't know pretty much 90 percent of what the plot of this movie was going to be so i i was definitely very pleasantly surprised with how much I enjoyed it. You're it's you're not wrong. It is hilarious. It is, you know, the set designs are and costuming, of course, are kind of phenomenal. It it, it was be- again, better than I thought it was going to be, and I'm very happy that the double feature that we experienced on that day, it was kind of the perfect tonal shift of just like the darkest, heaviest pseudo superhero historical drama and then like, well, it's not entirely without a message like you're saying it's very easy to digest like the messaging of barbie is exactly what you think it would be in the way that you think they would do it and they still made it really funny and compelling and you know interesting enough where i didn't hate the you know don't think about it thing that they kept doing of like listen there's gonna be logic problems but you just have to sit back and kind of just enjoy the experience as it is before you try to pick it apart like it's like it you know is a normal kind of plot and this isn't tenet you know i don't need them to i actually really liked that they didn't spend a ton of time on barbie lore this movie does not need barbie lore its joy is in how well presented all of its production design and costume design and silent world building is Mm. that you don't need to take a bunch of time to explain everything this movie looks gorgeous by the way it's really well shot it's got a real great visual pop i actually think that that's a big part of the reason that these movies are doing so well is that in addition to being you know recognizable even though like even though neither of them are sequels nolan is one of the few directors that i think people normal people actually know the names of Mm -hmm. barbie has this great stacked all-star cast and obviously a very recognizable brand coming behind it but i think the other thing is that both of these movies have such a distinct visual style and audiences are able to pick up on that this is flashy and big and something that is worth seeing in the movie theater even though it's not on imax 70 millimeter you know yeah definitely there's the flashy nature of having like scattered song and dance numbers while also having it be like the brightest most colorful thing you've seen in a theater in however long i mean everything that is has come out in the last 10 years that is supposed to be bright and colorful like you know any comic book movie of any studio or you know anything akin to that has always has been diluted so consistently over the years that now we're just like gray sludge all around and everybody 
is going to be happy with it or whatever. But this was, it was, it was great. It was very stimulating in, in every way. I loved how there was so much weird non-diegetic stuff that was just like, I mean, it was like half diegetic almost. It was like definitely a hint, hint, wink, wink at the audience. But then also things are just straight up showing you how things kind of work in the world that these beings are in. I, I feel weird calling, I mean, the Barbies and Kens are like very strange in their, you know, in their being. But I think that once we wrapped this movie up, which felt so short compared to something like Oppenheimer, I think it was a very good way to kind of keep that consistency with how we were looking at these characters as kind of like not all the way real world people. I guess the distinction between Barbie land and the real world. My last bit here before we move into spoilers is going to be that Margot Robbie's great. I think she's really like, I think this is her best performance. If I'm being honest that I've seen, I think she embodies the role perfectly and, and takes on a lot of emotional weight that I didn't expect to be in this movie. Definitely. Also this movie, you know, it's about, it's, it's a movie about the women in the movie and it's about feminism and all of this. Uh, and so with all of that being said, Ryan Gosling <laughs> He's is so good. a revelation <laughs> and I straight up think deserves an Oscar. I mean, I, it wow. is performance of the year to me so far. He is just no other human being could have done this role as well as he did it. And he is hysteric. Every single thing he does made me laugh. Every single thing. Yeah, it, it's an interesting place that his Ken character is in because it's, you know, he is the driving force for so much of what's happening here. But like you're saying, every single thing that he does and says is hysterical. It is so well done. And I know there was like a time when he was on the fence about taking the role and it could have very easily gone to somebody else. But I'm so happy that it came through that he was the co-star here with Mario Robbie because he's great. They're great together. The way that they bounce off of each other when they're interacting in, in, in the real world specifically, I feel like is just phenomenal. Uh, shout out to Michael Sarah. God damn it. He, he is, is so, so funny. Great. Will Ferrell is there. You know, he's doing his Will Ferrell thing. He is funny, but you know, he's not the best out there, but he is good. I mean, I think that pretty much all of the Barbies and all of the Kens are doing a really good job. Michael mm -hmm. Sarah is the one who's the best at moving like a doll, I would say. <laughs> he is a mannequin man. I'm going to go ahead and call spoilers just because I do want to get into some more of the, the nitty gritty here yeah. with Barbie. Alan fighting <laughs> all of the Kens. The construction Kens on the, the escape route. Kens, which is, it's, it's hilarious, but it's even more hilarious because it comes immediately after one of the best jokes in the movie, which is, we're going to really be in trouble once the Kens figure out that they have to build the wall <laughs> sideways, not just yeah. up. Oh yeah, that was very good. Ah, oh, those Kens are so incompetent. Yeah, that, that the one two of like that joke, and then suddenly you realize like, oh, all of these Kens, all of the Kens in general are like nothing people, and then the person discounted the most, Alan, is like a badass, incredibly capable, physically capable of like getting what needs to be done done. He's choking out that construction Ken with a shovel at one point. I thought he was gonna like break his neck or whatever. It was very weird, but I thought it was incredible. I'm Just Ken is a great musical number, yes. but I do think it is overshadowing a little bit the great all the Kens singing magic 
Xbox 20 to their Barbies <laughs> is hysterical. So, that's so good. It, the, I love the conformity of masculinity that, that Ryan Gosling, Ken, brings back from the real world. The idea that horses are such a big deal <laughs> in his idea of patriarchy is amazing. They've got like the Mount Rushmore of horse faces for some reason. <laughs> I, it's so good. Why didn't Barbie tell me about patriarchy? Why would she hide this from me? <laughs> Uh, the woman just be like, hey, do you know what time it is? And he's like, you want it? <laughs> I have the power. Thank God, finally. Incredible. The, the woman at the school who he keeps coming back to. Yeah. Like, just so you know, here's where I'm at on my journey. <laughs> Uh, him being like uh, Studio City. Wait, no, is that what it was? Century no, City. Century City, though, just like a mall complex. He's like, this is where men masculinity is born. They've got it all figured out there. But I like that the the nuance of the script, despite again, I think a lot of the film lacks nuance that I probably would have liked it to have. But I also understand that it's trying to appeal to a really wide audience and introduce concepts that Ben Shapiro already has too many problems <laughs> with. Um, to try to go further and not risk alienating the wider audience that it was targeting. And that this is actually probably changing people's minds. But with all that, I do like that it wasn't as simple as it could have been as like, well, the Barbie matriarchy is the proper order of things. And it not only shows that, you know, the Kent being disenfranchised under Barbieism is not a good thing and that something should be done to address that inequity, but that also under patriarchy the way the Kens are infantilized and put into a box is almost worse than it was for them when they were, you know, under the Barbie matriarchy. And so there's, there is a nice nuance there that I appreciate and instead of it just, it could have been really easy to just be like, oh, well, you know, patriarchy's bad, so we're just going to flip it back to the other thing. Yeah, there, there's... And even in, like, the real world, America Ferreira's, you know, like, the speech that she gives about, like, you know, being a woman and, and the idea of being a woman and, and tying that in with Barbie as a symbol in the real world and how she is, like, the ul the ultimate version of all of the things that she's going on her big rant about. I, I thought it was incredibly well done. I think that it was also used in a really fun way to do, like, the de-brainwashing sequence of, like, we're gonna s switch in and out of Barbies getting back into the Barbie mode and all that. I, I thought that was very well done. I gotta say, I actually think that that speech didn't super work for me, especially when I compare it to something like the speech that Saoirse Ronan has towards the third act of Little Women and how much more articulate that is. Again, I know this is for a wider audience. It's for a younger audience. I understand all of that. But the for me, this movie is at its strongest when it's dealing more in abstraction with those guys. Like, the dynamic between the Kens and the Barbies, I think, is generally really well done. But the more explicitly it tries to grapple with the nuances and larger societal implications of real-world gender politics, it starts to lose itself a little bit for me. And that's when it really becomes a little bit like, you know, oversimplified white feminist girl power or whatever. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the other thing is that that her character is like the secretary at Mattel in the real world but mm -hmm. also Mattel in the real world is as cartoonish as Barbie Land is which is like a in in my mind you know hearing her rant speech I'm like all right she's she's cracking under the insanity that is I need to help rebuild the now taken over Barbie Land which is an unspecified 
alternate dimension slash real place slash dream, maybe, slash whatever you want to call it. But then I think back to, like, Will Ferrell has, like, a boardroom of cartoon boardroom members. It's and... the Doctor Strangelove boardroom is what it is. Like, it yeah, is the yeah, boardroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really is. And then then he goes to like, all right, well, I am the man in charge of the real company. But now the ultimate solution is we have the big Barbie box that will, you know, whatever, trap her, send her back. We don't really ever get to know what I, I was thinking that she was going to get in there and they were going to wheel her into a, into the, you know, the the warehouse at the end of Raiders. And it was just going to be all the escaped Barbies that ever got recaught. <laughs> and then they were going to stage their own revolution or whatever. But we don't ever really get that far into it but it is still i do really think it's, i do it's pretty funny that despite the fact that i do feel some dissonance with like why is mattel a cartoon world in the real world it is really funny that will ferrell is so invested in feminism and it's <laughs> like we have to do the right thing over the bottom line until he's not immediately at the end like like once they get to barbie land he almost shifts to being more of a real world executive yeah, that is so weird isn't it that is strange but then in the same breath he's like oh yeah Rhea Perlman's ghost has an office on the sixth floor or whatever which is like a hilarious bit in and of itself but it brings it back to insanity also the 2001 opening which I really thought was only going to be a teaser trailer is hysterical and the idea of <laughs> throwing the Barbie in the air into the or the, the baby doll in the, the baby air doll. to do the match cut to the Barbie title card works on like three different levels I and I think that's fantastic it. I didn't I don't even think I ever saw that teaser so that was like a reveal for me that that's how they were starting it I thought that was amazing I thought that was so funny the way yeah Big fan, big fan of it. I also thought, uh, you know, eventually throughout the movie, we were going to get more references kind of of that caliber of like, you know, this is the importance of this, this thing, this concept, this idea of Barbie. But, you know, I like that they kind of kept that contained to the very intro. I'm trying to remember who the narrator was. Helen Mirren? Helen Mirren, yeah. Which she was, you know, she was great too. There's a couple great narrator bits of like, if the filmmakers wanted to make this point about Barbie being ugly, they shouldn't have cast Margot Robbie. You know, like that, that's a fun yeah. little aside. That is actually the lampshading thing in this movie that bothered me the most. Is that I right? <laughs> kind of right. They're not really right. Like, it's like they either shouldn't be lampshading it or they shouldn't be doing it. Like, it's one of the, like, I think they picked the worst route to go with that of like, just let the movie be the movie. It's like the Deadpool problem. Just let the movie be the movie. And because that also that that little bit there kind of undercuts a different important moment when she's in the real world and she's talking to that older woman at the bus stop, mm -hmm. which was a scene that was apparently producers were saying like, you can just cut that. Like, we don't really need oh, that. It doesn't really do anything. of the movie. The, exactly. The one of it's, exactly. The, the, because <laughs> my biggest my biggest issue with this movie for structural perspective is it changes what it's about like four different times and yes i wish that it didn't do that i wish it had a much i wish it had a tighter screenplay if i'm being honest but it is entertaining enough and funny enough that i am gonna let it get away with a lot because i really did have a great time like yeah. there needs to be more big studio comedies like this so I'm yeah cool. the comedies where chaos reigns supreme over like genuine flat-out logic like we can there's a there's room for that in hollywood i feel like because those if not you know oscar movies or whatever they are pure entertainment and that's i feel like barbie kind of is pure entertainment plus it has a great baseline messaging throughout the whole thing and the idea that they were going to do like that narration undercut of like isn't margot robbie the most beautiful woman in the world versus 
her having that moment with the older woman at the bus stop and the confidence that she has about her own beauty in old age, you know, th- those two things definitely hold dissonance to me that, that they could have worked with a little better. Which is also Robbie's best moment of performance, I think, in the entire film is that moment at the bus stop. Like that, I feel like I don't get a ton of nuance out of Margot Robbie. And in this movie, there is nuance that, that she's able to go from. It's almost like Will Ferrell in Elf where he plays so much of it so broad or honestly you know what is the better example is amy mm. adams and enchanted which oh, sure. i think there's a lot to be mined oh, from jace yeah. morrison and amy adams and enchanted and then margot robbie and ryan gosling in this for sure um, but like when you play so much of the film so broad and so cartoonish and then when you're able to whittle it back down to like oh just here's the humanity of the character here's one scene where we're just all of that big broadness fades away and it's just a real character living and breathing in the moment that is so much more impactful after the bigness and the broadness and her being so good at both of those things. I'm trying to think of Mojo oh, Dojo Casa House. Mojo Anyone? Dojo Casa House. Hilarious. Weird Barbie I thought was a lot of fun. Just the acknowledgement of like kids absolutely wreck their toys and there's like a there's an experience to the toys after that or whatever you know. Her being like I had a weird Barbie and you know everybody I had a weird Han Solo. You know I did. He had no nose. That, that guy got buried in my yard for ages i i I connected with that (laughs) uh yeah that that, a lot of their meta jokes about how kids play with barbies were fun i thought depression barbie was really funny um watching the pride and prejudice (laughs) miniseries on repeat that is a great miniseries check it out if you've not seen it i think it's on hulu (laughs) i have not seen it i will Oh, I do I'll like him. It. Well, yeah, I was going to say, if you, if you got anything else, we've got about 30 more seconds until we wrap up Barbenheimer. So, uh, sublime? Sublime. <laughs> sublime. So funny. Um, dance sequence. Really great dance sequence. The two the two musical sequences at the beginning with the Barbies in charge mirror the two sequences at the end with the mm-hmm. Ken's in charge. I think that's a nice little moment. Um, I did not care for the trailer scene of uh, I'm going to beat you off or whatever. I thought yeah, they were going to cut that like I almost entirely. That. I thought that was really lame, if I'm being honest. I was I was starting to get worried because that's pretty early in the movie. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know. Oh, no. <laughs> Is this the whole movie here? Cause, oh, well, we'll never know if that's the whole movie because our time with Barbenheimer has now expired, Garrett. Well, I think this was a great double feature. I'm glad that audiences all over the world are getting to see two good movies and i i'm glad that they were both good because these are both movies that i didn't have super high expectations for and was pleasantly surprised by both of yeah same here i don't often do a double feature at the movie theater but this was a hell of a time i think everybody should go take some time out of their weekend and spend like 10 hours at an amc and and go see oppenheimer and imax damn it go see you know if you just sprinkle a little mission impossible in there too oh you got yourself a weekend (laughs) (laughs) so yeah very glad we did this Seamus we had a good time and we got to talk a little bit more about IMAX over on our pop culture reference let's do it for today's pop culture reference we're going to be discussing what makes 70 millimeter IMAX special the depth and rich picture quality that can be achieved with the use of 65 and 70 millimeter film is what sets it apart from smaller film stock and digital methods The format is associated with old Hollywood epics like Lawrence of Arabia, but has slowly been making a resurgence with auteurs today. Christopher Nolan has been shooting films regularly on 65mm since The Dark Knight in 2008, 
and has very publicly emphasized the importance of presenting his films in large formats ever since. One of the most consistent points that Nolan brings to the table when stressing the lesser-utilized production and projection methods associated with 70mm film is how unique the audience experience is compared to watching something at home on a television. Nolan's latest film, Oppenheimer, was shot on IMAX 65mm film and standard 65mm film. It was the first film to shoot on IMAX black and white film, which was developed specifically for the film by Kodak and Photochem. The movie was released in a wide variety of formats, including standard digital, 35mm, 70mm film, and IMAX and other premium formats. Oppenheimer is the rare film that, while screening in all digital IMAX formats, is also screening in 70mm IMAX film. There are only 30 theaters in the world that still have the capability of playing 70mm IMAX, and only a handful of contemporary films still utilize the format. The IMAX 70mm format is different from the standard 70mm format. While both are visually impressive large format celluloid, standard 70mm films are cropped to the same widescreen aspect ratio as a film's wide release. With IMAX 70mm, the film is shown at a 1.43 to 1 aspect ratio, which is a significantly taller frame than standard films have, and creates a larger, more immersive movie-going experience. I wish that I would be getting to go see Oppenheimer in IMAX 70, but I just do not think that is in the cards. Not only is there not a theater in the state of Wisconsin with the capability of playing it, there's not one in Chicagoland either. So I think the closest one we could go to, Shavis, would be Indianapolis, which <laughs> well, would be a bit of a track to go see yeah, a movie, as fun as it would be. Quite a drive, but man, I would love nothing more than to experience a film like Oppenheimer, to, to the caliber of Oppenheimer on 70 IMAX, because, you know, we've both experienced just regular 70 millimeter projection films before, and they are as visually rich as it could possibly get for a film-going experience, and it is so incredibly impressive. Things that I will never forget seeing on 70mm, but the extra ad of IMAX going in there, it's so specific and special. I think that that's a bucket list for me, since there's, I mean, hell, there's only 30 in the world. It might be hard to lock down anytime soon. A few months ago, they did the Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol at the, I think it was at Grama's Chinese, in LA mm. that they did a special screening of it on 70 IMAX and I so oh. wish that I could that specifically Dude, is a bucket list for me. Could you imagine? That is that would be unbelievable. That okay, yeah, that is a more specific and even cooler bucket list item than any anything, but that movie specifically would be life-changing to see in that format because seeing things in normal you know we don't even have laser imax at the theater that we go to we don't we just have like standard like the base limax mm -hmm. digital tier and people really do just treat it like it's a normal movie going experience i feel like i would imagine that people are maybe a little bit more respectful when they go see... I mean, the Barbenheimer trend is definitely getting people... I was really annoyed at the guy next to me in Oppenheimer who was taking Snapchats the entire movie. Oh my god, yeah. I'm like, were you people raised in a barn? Like, <laughs> don't, you just don't take movies... You don't take pictures of the movies. You just don't do that. It's, a, it's an event. It's an experience, damn it. You go and you, you, you're you there. You're in the moment. You're not, I don't know, yeah. On both sides of us, pretty much, in that theater, there were people just exclusively on their phones. And I mean, the Barbie screening was just all, <laughs> all flash pictures for some reason. But something like Oppenheimer, something like that event, it's very bizarre. But 
70 millimeter IMAX is something that I wish I could get to more often, certainly, because I haven't seen it since I since you know they phased that out altogether back when we were kids. And I I don't think I'm gonna make it for Oppenheimer, but I think probably the next high high profile thing mm. that releases I'm gonna try to get somewhere. Maybe try to get out to Indianapolis. Indianapolis. <laughs> we are very lucky to be able to like I'm going to see Oppenheimer on 70 standard this weekend, and so I I feel lucky enough to be close to theaters that play standard 70 millimeter films because even that is such a rarity and such a like you said such a treat. Absolutely agreed. But I think it's time to move on and to. Save the rec center, Seamus. Our Mojo Dojo Casa. (laughs) Save the Mojo Dojo Casa Center. I'm in. Let's do it. Save the rec center! Now it's time to save the Mojo Dojo Casa Center, (laughs) where we bring you our weekly dojo mendations. (laughs) Seamus, what do you got this week? Oh, goodness gracious. Well, this week, I'm out of town right now, and on my plane ride, I decided to revisit an absolute classic. Shane Black's, Joel Silver's, Mel Colm-Seeley Gibson's Lethal Weapon. I hate that I love this movie so much, maybe. It is it is absolutely the most bonkers thing, and I never remember how crazy it actually gets until I am watching Big Teeth Blonde Fellow. Oh, Gary Busey. Yes, I, I never remember how crazy Gary Busey is in this movie, or, weirdly enough, how crazy Mel Gibson is in this Mel movie. Mel Gibson is crazy in that movie. It's he is wild. wild. It's the first thing that Riggs does on screen is put a gun in his mouth mouth in his trailer and and that's like his whole thing is that he's very sad about his you know his life and all that but he is insane and god bless him he's incredible in this movie give him a give him a role of an insane person and he can knock it out of the park for some reason don't ask me why i couldn't tell you incredible action-packed hilarious vaguely problematic in a few parts but you know what shane black joel silver 80s action movie doesn't have its moments danny glover is the best person who's ever been on screen ever he is like an actual world-class incredible performer and he does not let up in this movie at all anyway sadly joe pesci doesn't come in until the sequels so he's not here for this one but man oh man i think i might actually go in to the franchise now because i've only ever seen this first one and i kind of just left the other ones to the wind which is kind of i hear what you're supposed to do but i think i'm locked in again man this movie is so incredible and weirdly enough a great airplane watch so if you haven't seen it in a while garrett go watch it again it's gonna it's gonna be the weirdest thing over and over again no matter how many times you see it i mean richard donner he's a he's a best of mind he is such a good director and that shane black script is bonkers even though it is all of the Shane Blackisms all rolled into <laughs> one, uh, yeah, it's 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 not my favorite Shane Black joint, but I do enjoy it certainly, and I I should revisit it. It's been a few years. Yeah, it's I mean, hey man, it's Christmas. It's a Christmas movie. You know that it is. You know that you can't escape how weirdly Christmas it is. And it's and with without Lethal Weapon, we w- we literally wouldn't have Die Hard. So it, truly, thank goodness for Lethal <laughs> Weapon. But Garrett, what do you have to save the Dojo Mojo Jojo whatever? house today you Seamus 
I was really afraid you were going to rug pull me because oh? I'm here with another Shane Black movie oh. for my rec center. Is that right? Because anybody who enjoyed Barbie over the last couple weeks needs to seek out Shane Black's The Nice Guys featuring oh, yeah. one of the funniest performances of the decade from Ken himself, Ryan Gosling. This is the first movie that I remember seeing. It, 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 like, it was revelatory in that I had no idea Ryan Gosling was that funny. I had no clue that that was in his skill set. And he is fantastic in that movie. I, this, personally, is probably actually my favorite Shane Black. I do love Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, mm. but it's got such a good buddy cop dynamic. I think Angori Rice's character, who is Ryan Gosling's character's daughter, really makes this movie annoying kid sidekick usually does not work out in these kinds of things see long kiss goodnight <laughs> but it is a banger through and through i know you like this one and i revisited it like the second i got back from barbie because i was like i just need i need some gosling comedy in my life i love that movie i think it's incredible i, I remember not really it wasn't really on my radar when it came out but then by the time i watched it you know wherever just with friends it was mind-blowing it's so funny it's you know it's an la noir but 70s and and like you're saying ryan gosling is he steals every single scene of that movie that he's in he's so funny he's so bumbling as a detective i i think it's incredible and honestly i might download that on my phone for the plane ride home i know it's not ideal to watch it on a phone but it's such a good movie and now that you've re-reminded me of how good it is i think i'm I might have to just do it. It's a masterpiece, I think. I mean, once again, it's got some problems. Shane Black always has some problems. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you're not wrong. But Gosling alone is so funny that that completely makes up for pretty much anything else. Oh, well, I, I wholeheartedly second that rec center for sure. And honestly, a little kiss, kiss, bang, bang, the nice guys double feature sounds like a treat. That is, you, you, you watch the nice guys, and then at the end, when it's the one scene that's set at Christmas, then you get to go. <laughs> <laughs> fully into Christmas for yeah. Christmas Bang Bang. Perfect. Perfect. But that wraps us up for this week's episode of Pop Culture Reference. If you want to reach the show, you can find us on social media at Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at PCR underscore podcast. You can email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail. Dot com. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube, support the show in any way you can. It really helps us out. Next week, in anticipation of the Meg 2, which we will hopefully be covering in the coming weeks, we will be covering the original that started it all, <laughs> Jason Statham's The Meg. Oh, I cannot wait to dive into that with you. I've never seen it before, and I've always kind of wanted to as a giant monster fan myself. I think this is going to be a great summertime movie for me to finally catch up with. Well, I'm very curious to see how it meets your expectations, Seamus, because it may it may subvert some of them. <laughs> That's what I say. hear. That's what I hear. But everybody, we will see you and our Megalodon friend next week. Adios, Destroyer of Worlds.